going on, everybody? Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of the Web Shop One. That's right. That's right. Get excited. We're back. We're back after an unexpected seven-day hiatus. We're back again with another episode to give you, the people, what you want to see, which is me getting all hyped and amped up and giving my analysis on all things in the sports world. And specifically today, we have a hot and I mean hot show for you today. We have the Unified Heavyweight Championship being put on the line again in a rematch of Alexander Usyk versus Anthony Joshua for the Heavyweight Championship of the World. And on top of that, we're also going to touch on Deontay Wilder and his seemingly come back into the boxing realm after his loss to Tyson Fury, as well as the NBA going on their rivalry week that was just announced with their full season schedule. And my thoughts on that and why I have a problem specifically with rivalries in the NBA. But without further ado, we're going to touch on the main thing of the show, which is the rematch for the heavyweight championship of the world. And without further ado, it's time for us to step into the ring. That's right. Oh, yes. Cheer. Get loud. Get excited. Because it's time for us to step into the ring with the one of the biggest fights of the year. Like I said before, rematch for the heavyweight title between Alexander Usyk and Tyson Fury. Not Tyson Fury. And Anthony Joshua. Excuse me. Alexander Usyk and Anthony Joshua. Now, I've touched on this before in a previous episode. But the reason why... I want to touch on this again. First off, because the fight's tomorrow, 5 o'clock. Find it wherever you can. If you can watch it, watch it. If you don't, you're going to miss a barn burner. And we already touched on this. But again, not only just because of time relevancy, but also there have been some things that have come up that I think are going to change the outcome of the fight. Specifically, one, Tyson Fury, not Tyson Fury, doggone it, not Tyson Fury. And one, in Anthony Joshua's approach to this fight, and two, the adjustments I think he's going to make, or rather should make. Now, first things first. I think Usyk's going to win this fight still. That's the main thing. Let's get out of the way right now. Usyk's going to win this fight again, in my estimation. And I'm going to get into why. But, in, but the first off, with what this fight is going to be, this fight is not going the distance. This fight is not going the distance, unlike what the last fight was. Because here's the reason why. It's not going the distance because Anthony Joshua is coming into this fight with a different mentality that he had going into the last fight. We just saw the weigh-in going on that happened earlier today. In fact, I think in the last hour or two, the weigh-in between the two and the face-off between the two, each of them is coming in with two different mindsets. And that's what makes weigh-ins and face-offs so important in combat sports. See, combat sports and boxing different for anything else in the sports world because of the fact that everything is a mental edge. Again, 75, in my opinion, 80% of the fight game is mental and 20% is physical. The mental aspect is one of the most important things that a fighter can have Going into a fight is arguably the most important thing because of the fact that you can have all the ability, but if your mind isn't there to capitalize on that, well, then now you're just out of luck and you're essentially swimming. You got a, you got a yacht with no gas in it. It can't go nowhere. It can't do nothing. You can't utilize all the bells and whistles. You can't go in and, and make 
the opportunities um, in your favor when they happen in the fight because mentally you're not trusting your ability as a fighter and you can't take advantage of any of your physical gifts. That's why the, the mental aspect of the fight game and getting into your opponent's head is so important when it comes to being a fighter. However, when it comes to Anthony Joshua, last fight, some people would say he was looking like he was content to lose. If you go back and watch the last fight, because there was a rematch clause, because people wanted, because it was guaranteed that he was going to be able to fight again, it would look like when you were watching him, it was, okay, boom, I have another shot. You know, I, I, I tried, and now, I, okay, well, if I lose, I lose, I'll take it back again. Whether, whether he says he hates losing or not, in the ring, it seemed like he kind of took his foot off the gas and said, okay, after the later rounds when Usyk was getting to me, landing, like I said in the last episode, that lead left hand, countering me, not being, not letting me able to hit and capitalize on my raw power, hey, Okay, I'll get him back next time. Now, however, he's coming in with a different mentality. Now it's a I have to win mentality. Now it's a it's a distinction of there is no tomorrow like what you saw in, in Rocky when Creed was training him, trying to get him to get amped up and understand that there is no tomorrow when it comes to this fight. You've got to be there and be in the moment and fight like this is your last fight. Now we get to see, if you watch the weigh-in, now we get to see Anthony Joshua starting to take heed to that mentality. Now he's getting invested in saying, I got to put everything in there. And he's not going to try to outbox him. He said this in previous uh, uh, in previous interviews. His trainer has said it. We'll see if it holds true, but at this point in time, Joshua is not going to just be content with saying, I'm going to outbox you and outskill you to a 12-round decision and wait for the knockout to come. No, he's going to try to force the issue. He is going to look for the ability, and this is what he needs to do. This is the fight plan that Joshua has to heed to if he wants to take back the Unified Heavyweight Championship. And get back on the road to becoming the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. He is going to push the pace and use his size and make it so that he cuts off the ring. See, like I said, I believe I said this in the last episode. And if not, you're going to hear it for the first time here. Similar to George Foreman, who's thinking he's coming to this fight as the bigger, stronger man with the longer reach. Oh, not Usyk. Joshua is coming into this fight as the bigger man with the longer reach and more power. Again, he's 244 in this fight versus Usyk, who came into the fight 221. I thought he was going to come into the fight heavier. I think he was going to come at 230, 240, not 250, because that's, that's over what his body can take to be able to utilize all of his assets and abilities. But came in at 220, 221 to be exact which is phenomenal for Usyk, but for Joshua, coming in at 244, coming in at 6'6", six six, he's got to be able to cut off the ring, first off. Usyk in the last fight was able to bob and weave, hinder, uh, hinder Joshua's ability to actively use his reach by not letting him get comfortable. And one of the things that Teddy Atlas put in his fight breakdown, if you can check it out, check it out as well. Phenomenal breakdown of what this fight could potentially look at being. 
Joshua kept trying to step in and jab, step in and jab, close the distance with his jab. And while it may work for other opponents, but an opponent like Usyk, that's out the question. What he has to do is, like Teddy Atlas said, use a static jab, which essentially you as the fighter with the longer reach are staying stationary and, and pawing, constantly pawing, constantly keeping your distance stationary, keeping your distance, planting your feet. And not trying to come forward with the jab, but stay where you are and keep him at the edge of it. If he comes in, back up a little bit. Keep him at the edge. Force Usyk to come in and make the mistake of getting in your range. Rather than you, as the taller opponent, coming into their range, trying to close distance with your jab. So you can inevitably lead or hit with your power straight. Because again, Joshua can take Usyk out. Let's not be stupid about this whole situation. Usyk is vulnerable. Coming up as a cruiserweight, he is vulnerable coming into this fight. He is susceptible to being overmatched and overpowered. The only problem is Joshua has to commit to, to sticking to that game plan. He's got to commit to being the aggressor. He's got to commit to not trying to harp on, oh, I got to be technical, or I got to do this, that, and the third ever so perfectly. And Joshua's got to stay into the mindset of I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to put myself at risk. I'm going to make my power known by putting myself in a vulnerable position so that I can land with tough shots. And what does that mean? That means drawing the opponent in, letting Usyk come in with his head moving. Or excuse me, not letting him come in. I'm not saying you just let him get on the inside. Because if that's the case, you're going to lose just like you did in the last fight. And again, this isn't going to be, this isn't going to a decision. This ain't going to 12 rounds in my estimation. So you can mark my words if Joshua just lets them come in. Oh no, he'll get knocked out. Absolutely. He already got hurt and he already got stunned multiple times in multiple other fights. Need we bring up Ruiz in his fight? Need we bring up the previous championship fights that he had where he's Dillian White? Early in his career. Got stunned when he was fighting him. He's been stunned. Again, Chinny. Incredibly Chinny. One of his biggest pitfalls as a heavyweight is that with all his power, if he gets caught, he's in trouble. He is in deep trouble. But again, he cannot be scared of the deep trouble. What he has to be is he has to be willing to embrace the trouble. Embrace the danger so he can land the shots that he wants to land. And this is what's going to make this fight different. Joshua coming into this fight hasn't talked to the media a whole bunch. If he has, he's been completely determined and mean, again, similar to Marvin Hagler, marvelous Marvin Hagler, excuse me, about that war mentality, about being able to, I want to fight. I want to go. I want to take somebody's head off. Ain't no niceties with me. And even in the, in the face-off, didn't. Stared that brother down to a T. Didn't let him look away. Didn't let him be the last one to turn to the camera and, and look away from the locked eyes that they had. Asserting dominance. Making his mental position known that you're not going to get the same fight that you had in the last fight. I'm not shying away from anything. I'm looking to take you out. I'm looking to destroy you. I'm not looking to play with you. I'm not looking to go the distance with you. That's great. And the tactics that he needs to do in order to make that 
um, tech or to, or to make that game plan a reality, he's got to be able to draw in Usyk without letting himself be pulled in to Usyk's range, making so that Usyk has to come into Joshua's range, making so that Usyk has to fight and 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 weave and dodge into getting on the inside. Because last fight, again, he helped him by using his jab, but stepping forward with his jab. When he stepped forward with his jab, he essentially made it easier for Usyk to slip, close the distance, and then lead with his lead left hand and counter and pot shot and, ne- and inevitably hurt him in the long run. And towards the end of the fight, 10 seconds left in the 12th round, oh, Joshua would have gotten put on the canvas. He was in that much trouble. But again, Joshua can't be scared. Also, Joshua has to be able to be willing to go to the body. And I'm not talking about just at a distance going to the body. I'm talking about if the fight does get into Usyk's range and Usyk does get close and Usyk does have the and gets within his reach to where he can actually throw shots, go to the body, immediately go to the body. Do similar to what Tyson Fury does. Lean on him. Put your weight on him. Smother his punches. And then attack the body either when he tries to escape the clinch or when he's trying to come into the clinch or when you're in fighting. Left hooks. And then if you're at range, guess what? Straight rights to the body off of a jab. Consistent body work is going to win him the fight because in the last fight, Usyk was troubled. Usyk got hurt. When he was fighting, when he got hit in the body, he winced, he groaned, he was uncomfortable. Even though he's, again, slightly heavier than he was, about a quarter of a pound heavier than he was going into the first fight against Joshua. It's still, Joshua's power is still there. Say what you want about he's quote-unquote getting exposed when he now that he's fighting upper elite talent. Say what you want about him seemingly not being the guy that we thought he was. He's still one of the stronger heavyweights, one of the strongest heavyweights, excuse me, in the division today. He still has an insane knockout percentage. He's still built like a brick house. And say what you want about how his build isn't adept for a fighter. For him it is because his body can take it. I'm not with people saying, oh, he needs to be leaner. He needs to lose more weight so he can be more elusive, so he can move around. No, he's got the ability to move around. He's got the ability to use his feet. He's got that in him. The only problem is he wasn't utilizing it. Keep the weight, but add the tactics. If you get any leaner, well, yes, you'll be more apt to be able to go longer distances, you won't get winded as much. You'll still have power, but not as much power. That right there is the, is the difference. Not having as much power takes away one of your biggest threats. Because again, you won the championship not losing weight. You won the championship being built. You don't need to go straight up streamline, streamline. You can keep some of the weight. If you're Joshua, because again, your body can take it. It's the tactics that you're utilizing that's hindering you in this fight. 
You want the strength in this fight. You want the size in this fight. You want the ability to have a physical advantage in nearly every aspect, except for speed coming into this fight. Because then you'll be able to actively weigh on the smaller man. And that's what he has to do. Usyk, all he has to do to stay what is do what he's been doing. You don't got to talk about Usyk's game plan because Usyk's game plan is the same. It doesn't need to change. All he's got to do is keep his head movement, keep his footwork elite, fight off angle, shoot the shoot the rear left hand because he fights at southpaw and make him uncomfortable the whole fight. You already know you can hurt him, so you ain't got to put on more muscle, which he didn't. All you got to do is stay the exact same. You don't got to do one thing different if you're Usyk. Not one thing different if you're Usyk. Usyk has the game plan to beat him because he did it the first time. Because he did it the first time. There's nothing else he needs to do. What does need to be done is Joshua, on the other hand, has to be willing to adapt and fight with aggression. Fight with fire. Fight with fervor. He's got to be willing to Take it to Usyk. He's got to be willing to say, I'm going to put my head in the fire and I'm going to smile while I'm in there. And what does that mean? Not just use your size and go in to fight box and use your length and use your strength, but you got to be the lead dancer in this fight. Again, boxing's a dance, a beautiful dance of violence. You got to be the one to take the lead. You got to be the one to press. Make Usyk fight on the back foot. Usyk was able to come forward when he was fighting you. That's what made it so, that's what made him so effective. He was able to come forward and, and put you on the back foot as the fight went on. He was able to circle you and make it so that you were uncomfortable. If you got in the corner, used his feet, angled out, led, or, or, or hit, potted you with the lead left, and then kept going. And then once you got turned your back at the ropes, what did Usyk do? Then he, he put on the aggression again. Once Usyk got comfortable and got confident, then he started putting you on the back. He put Joshua on the back foot. That can't happen with Joshua this fight. Joshua's got to be the one to walk Usyk down. And then when he's out of when he's at his reach and at his range, instead of trying to go head hunting. With a one-two, jabbing straight right. Now he's got to go to the body. Now he's got to go hooks to the body. Wide hooks to the body. Because at that distance, Usyk can't reach him, but Joshua can reach Usyk. And again, Joshua doesn't even have to put all of his power into his shots. He doesn't even have to land clean. They don't even have to land clean. But what that does is break him down. So that later on in the fight, which is what Joshua likes to do, then he can turn it up. Now you're hurt. Now you can't hold your block up like you normally do. Now your feet are slower. Now my shots are taking more and more of an effect. Now you're hurt as you're blocking. Even grazing shots are starting to get to you. Now you're broken down to where I can become the finisher that I was earlier in my career when I had about 19 or 20 knockouts in 19 to 20 fights. 
going back to that one point in time, 100% knockout ratio. Finishing you off with, with a barrage of punches. Precise, angled, tactical shots that ended in a barrage of a flurry of powerful hooks and strikes. That's what Joshua has to do. And that's what he can do. But he's got to set it up. And that doesn't mean box. That means fight. See, in a, in a, in a boxing game, there's two different levels of other aspects of a fight. There's the boxing aspect of the fight. There's, there's the fight aspect of the fight. The boxing aspect is laying the groundwork for your game plan. The fight aspect is once that ground that groundwork is laid or when that groundwork isn't working, okay, now it's time for me to adjust or now it's time for me to turn it up, depending on which side of the, of the coin that you're on. The boxing is the fundamental aspect. You jab, get your range right. Understand the opponent's rhythm. Being able to time them. Gauging what their game plan is. All of that stuff. The, 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 the technical stuff, quote unquote. The smarts of boxing. Once that gets established, or once you can't, once you cannot establish it, depending on which side of the coin that you're on, now the fight takes place. Now... It's time to take some chances. Now it's time to say, now I can start throwing caution to the wind. Because it happens on both sides. You see this when a fighter is either A, outclassed, or B, outclassing an opponent and wants to put him away. That's when the fight starts. Now, again, boxing's still going on, but the fight, now takes place. That's why you hear commentaries all the time. And that's why you can that's why you hear commentaries all the time. And that's why you can sense when the crowd now starts sitting up in their seat and getting excited and antsy. Because the boxing match has been underway, but the fight is now getting started. Now the switches have flipped on both fighters in terms of not only the severity but the intensity of the moment now has shifted to a new level. That's when the fight comes about. That's when now you see fighters trying new things. That's when now you see fighters going, let's say they're a traditional one-two jab straight type of fighter. Now when the fight starts, okay, now they're throwing lead left hooks to try to counter the fighter. Now they're starting to do a little more body work Ending with a big hook to the head. Now they're throwing one or two hooks or one or two strikes back to back, trying to catch the opponent out of rhythm. Now you see shots that are okay. If you get hit by this, you might be in trouble or it'll get your attention. That's when the fight starts. That's when the fight starts. And that's what Joshua has to do from round two on. You cannot try to just go with the main, or excuse me, your game plan cannot be just to do what you did in the last fight as just a continuation in terms of 
I'm going to try to outbox you. Again, Joshua said he wants to knock him out. He's going in there to knock him out. I'm saying that this fight ain't going the distance. But it's up to Joshua to make sure that when it doesn't go the distance, it's, on, it's for his benefit. And he's the one with his hands raised with Usyk going on the canvas. And the only way that's going to happen is if Joshua turns this into a fight before round three. He's got to take risk and he's got to throw caution to the wind to a degree early and often. Again, utilizing his size and let himself throw punches that even if they don't connect, one, they're at the body. And two, again, even if they don't connect, now they make Usyk think. Because at first in the last fight, all Usyk had to worry about was the right hand to the head. That was the biggest thing. The straight right, from the all-around power from Joshua is one of the biggest aspects of Joshua that you have to worry about. But the main thing is the one-two combo of a jab and a straight right to the head. Now, once Joshua started going to the body, all of a sudden Usyk now had to worry about, you know, oh, I wasn't expecting this. Oh, now I got to try to start retreating. Now I'm, start, I'm, I'm, I'm getting hurt. And Joshua took those rounds. But then when he went away from that game plan later on in the fight, Usyk was able to get back in rhythm. And then what happened? Boom, ultimately hurt him later in the fight. And then nearly knock him out in the last round. With 10 seconds left. Going to a, again, unanimous decision. Winning the Unified Heavyweight Championship of the World. That's what happened in the last fight. Joshua, this fight has to say from round two and on, I am not going to let Usyk set the pace. I'm going to be the one to set the pace, and I'm going to go to the body early. I'm going to the body often, and I'm throwing caution to the wind early in the fight so that I can take advantage of the late wear and tear once the fight gets to round seven, round eight, round nine, and take them out. That's what's got to happen. And one of the best ways to do that is body work. And make the threat of your power more apparent by throwing more heavy punches. Now, I'm not saying you fight like Deontay Wilder. I'm not saying you throw caution to the wind and every shot is a big shot until you win it by round three. It's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that you throw, instead of just the right straight, throw a hook in the right straight. Instead of setting up everything off the jab, maybe throw an uppercut at the time. Throw an uppercut straight right from time to time. Usyk wants to go away from Joshua's right hand. So what does he do? He circles the opposite way. The best way to do that, especially for a Southpaw fighter in Ulcic, that Joshua can use to capitalize, is throwing a lead left hook. Make it so that Usyk has to go, or, or when he drifts away from the right hand, Usyk drifts into a left hook, either to the head or to the body. And then from there, left hook, straight right. Because now you've forced him back the other way, leading into, pop, 
leading into his big right hand. When he gets into a corner, see, here's what he needs to do. Fight like George Foreman. Fight like George Foreman. George Foreman with bigger opponents. I think you've heard me say this before. George Foreman against, what as a bigger opponent, fighting against a smaller opponent, used his arms and hands to manipulate their guard and manipulate where they could go and what they could do. Worked great against elusive fighters, just like with Joe Frazier. Used his arms, pushed him back, forced him up, forced him off angle, never made it so, always made it so that his head movement worked against him, and then pushed him into punches. He pushed him into where he wanted to throw. If Joe Frazier was trying to duck under, what would he do? Straight, uh, use his hands, pop him up, pop, short right to the guard. If Joe Frazier was trying to, to use head movement, what would he do? Lean him, or rather push him, push him to his left, short left. Or push him to his right, straight right. Or even push him down when he would try to bob up. Because Joe Frazier was a guy that bobbed and weaved. Had one of the great, had some of the greatest head movement in the heavy, in heavyweight history. Instincts were off the chart. But one of his common tactics was, again, bob and weave from the cross guard. So what did, what did George Foreman do? When he would bob down, he'd push him up. And when he would bob up, push him down. And to capitalize on those pushes, when he pushed him up, straight right. When he pushed him down, uppercut. Plain and simple. Joshua can do that exact same thing. Manipulate where Usyk goes by forcing him to go where he wants him to go. And throwing punches in the direction that Usyk's trying to go away from. The goal of Joshua that he needs to do is land body shots on a consistent basis early and often and use his left hand not to jab. Well, yes, to jab. But even more importantly than to jab, left hooks to the head, left hooks to the body when Usyk tries to drift and weave away from his right hand. So you can lead him back into the path of a straight right or of a right uppercut or of a right hook. Force him to where you want him to go instead of trying to only track his head movement. Because I can say what you want about Deontay Wilder. Lack of skill, no footwork, no head movement, horrible defense. Relies on his chin a lot. A lot. And only has one weapon. That brother knows how to use that weapon better than anybody else in the heavyweight division today. The greatest right hand that we've ever seen. And the delivery system that has been flawless. But it's so simple. Gauge. Pull out the jab. It's a lazy jab. Pull out the jab. Hold it. Once you got the target locked, just wait for the one second. Because that's all he needs is one. For as bad of a boxer as Deontay Wilder is, all he needs is one. Once he finds it, pop. 
That's it. He's perfected that simple yet destructive art. Joshua, while he's good, that one art he doesn't have to that degree. I guess a fighter like Usyk. No, if he fought Tyson Fury, he wouldn't have that either. Usyk is a guy that you cannot track, track and trace if you're Joshua. It just can't work because it didn't work last fight. You got to put, as an old saying would say, water in the basement. Put some change in the bank. Put some deposits early in the fight into the bank so that when you want, when you want to withdraw some money, you got ample. The deposits are body shots and throwing power shots, even if they don't land flush, to not only get Usyk to respect your power, but to wear him down. So that when you want to withdraw, or now you want to go in for the knockout, now you got ample money to take. Because now Usyk can't move like he normally does. His head movement's slower. His head movement's now more predictable. It's easier to track now to a, a, at a speed that now, okay, now you can throw one, two, and it actually land. Now you can set traps as the bigger man that because he's tired, he may not pick up on. Because he's more worn than he was anticipating, he might fall into traps easier. He might fall into your setup for an uppercut, which is lethal from Joshua. One of his best punches. He might fall into a counter straight right. He might get lax and lunge for a straight left. A power left. Again, because Usyk to softball. He might lunge in for a power left. And then what happens? Boom, get caught. Because he's out of range. Put him on the canvas. All of that could happen, but you have to put water in the basement. If you do not there is no chance you're going to be able to win this fight. There's no chance. Because you can't win it off of points. Not against Usyk. You can't win it off of points. Because his style is just too footwork and his constant mobility is not going to allow you to just outpoint him with the way that Joshua fights. It's not going to happen. What has to happen is he's got to put water in the basement. Attack the base of the body and the head will fall. It's like if you're chopping down the tree. You don't chop at the very top. You chop down near the roots. Because then once that goes, the whole tree falls off. Whole tree falls over. That's what Joshua has to do. If he does that, and if he gets mean, and if he takes chances, if he throws more power shots instead of trying to only set up the right hand and only headhunt, if he makes his presence, size, and strength known and apparent, 
throughout the fight early and makes it so that he puts Usyk on the back foot, now you have a shot at knocking him out like you want to and winning the championship again. But if not, if you go in there and you, one, you're not adaptable, and two, you don't put body work like you're supposed to, no, I don't see Joshua winning this fight. I don't see him winning this fight. He's not going to retire if he loses, but his career trajectory is now cemented that he's the third best heavyweight in the world. Now he's got to build himself back up by fighting people like Ruiz, fighting people like a rematch with Pulev, fighting people like Deontay Wilder, which I would love to see. This loss may be good because now he'll have to, he'll be forced to fight Wilder, which I've been wanting to see for a long time. He'll be forced to fight all these other heavy. He'll be forced to fight Joe Joyce. He'll be forced to fight Dubois, young heavyweights that are up and coming. He'll be forced to fight them if he loses this fight because he ain't getting another championship shot. Not immediately. You have to earn it back, and he rightfully can. It'll, and it'll make for matches that we want. I've been wanting to see, that boxing wants to see. Young, talented stars fighting each other in their prime. Because now the loss is obsolete because it happened. Two losses, oh, now I'm, I, I got to take my fights when I can, which is great. And that's exactly what can happen to Joshua if he loses this fight. If he wins this fight, hey, you're back on top. The kings reclaim the throne. And now all that's left is to see who the world gets the WBO belt from Tyson Fury. Because again, for those who don't know, in fact, great next topic for the show, Tyson Fury's retired. Again, he's retired, unretired, tired, unretired, retired, unretired. Now he's saying he's officially done. Tyson Fury still has the WBO championship. That's why this, this fight isn't for the unified, or excuse me, that's why this fight isn't for the undisputed heavyweight championship with all four major belts on the line, including the lineal belt, which is essentially, for those who don't know, the lineal belt is when goes way back to the first ever heavyweight champion back in like the 1800s or something when there was only one belt. The lineage of people that have gone on to be champions from that champion in terms of, think of it like king of the court for basketball people. If you're a basketball fan, you know what I'm talking about. One-on-one, if you score against your opponent, you stay on the floor. If you lose, you come off the floor. The guy who stays on the floor, if they win that one-on-one matchup, becomes the king of the court. Any other challenger can come on and, and, and beat them or try to beat them. If they do beat that king of the court, that new player becomes the new king of the court. And now he's the guy. And that cycle keeps going and going and going and going and going for as long as the game goes on. 
That's what it's like for the lineal champion. Lineal champion is I am tied to the first ever heavyweight champion. And I am in the lineage of that championship because I beat the man that beat the man that beat the man that beat the man that beat the man. Going all the way back to the first original man or the first original champion back in the 1800s. That's what a lineal champion is. That's why it's so prestigious. Because you enter the essentially bloodline of I'm the new I'm the new protector of the lineage. I want to be the quote unquote man as long as possible. Because now I'm not only part of the lineage that fought against the original champion, but I'm part of the lineage that became the quote unquote original champion. And now you got to take history for me. That's what the lineage championship is. I got, I'm in the bloodline. I'm carrying the bloodline. And if I win against the previous holder of the bloodline, that bloodline now belongs to me. I want to hold on to this because it's got legacy bigger than any of these belts that are out right now. That's what the lineal championship is. And that's up for grabs in this title fight as well. But the WBO championship is not, which is the one that Tyson Fury is. And Tyson Fury is retired. So what it should do is put that title belt in this mix and just make this undisputed. Would have made this fight 10 times bigger. But no. It's probably going to be a title eliminator for that belt. And who's going to be in that title eliminator is Deontay Wilder. Which is a great transition for our next point. Deontay Wilder is coming back after his insane trilogy against Tyson Fury for a comeback tour for the heavyweight championship of the world. Been out for a, a long time, contemplated retirement, went back, went reclusive, talked it over with his family, friends, fans, and said, no, I, I'm going to run it back which is phenomenal. He's fighting his next opponent, which I think is pretty good in my estimation. Next opponent, well, in terms of for him, let me rephrase that, for him. The next opponent that he's fighting right now is Robert Hellenius. Brother 16th ranked heavyweight in the world, 31-1 and with three losses, 20 KOs, he is a good heavyweight for Wilder to get back on track with. Sparred together, trained together. If Robert wins, this makes him, this, this raises the stock tremendously. If Wilder wins, however, still raises the stock. But how he wins is going to be the question. Is it going to end in knockout? Yes. Let's not be dumb. We know this is most likely going to end in knockout. It can and most likely will end in a KO by Wilder. 
Because again, Robert Helanius, for as good as he is, he's not the upper elite of heavyweights. Kind of stiff, has a good jab, does have power and a size, doesn't have great footwork, doesn't really use head movement at all, relies on his block, doesn't really throw major combinations, has a good one too. And when he gets comfortable, okay, cool, he'll throw some other shots like hooks, like uppercuts. He may use angles from time to time. But ain't nothing, it's nothing special. It's nothing special. But he's not a bad heavyweight. He's a good heavyweight. Thing is, going up against Wilder, I don't need to see Wilder just go and just bulldoze him through. Or rather, I don't need to see him, to see him just bulldoze Robert Hellenius with the same tactics. Still want to see him bulldoze. Don't get it twisted. That's what you do best. I'm not saying stray away from what you are. You're knockout artist. Knock him out when you're supposed to knock him out. But if he wants to get back to the top and get back to being world heavyweight champion, he's got to show new wrinkles to his game. And by that, I mean get back down. First off, not come into the fight 220, 240. Excuse me. Not come into the fight 240, 235. Come into the fight between 240 and 215 pounds. At his best weight, he's 212 pounds. That's what he needs to be. 212. Looking for that. He's not gassing out. Secondly, a better jab. Thirdly, body work. At least major straight rights to the body. Fourth, at least some semblance of being able to fight on the back foot at a more comfortable rate. Fifth, lead hooks. Sixth, rear hooks. Hooks in general. Seventh, setting traps. All of these things. I don't need to, again, it's a lot, and the list is even longer, but I don't need to see everything at an elite level. I just need to see that he has it. Because the scariest Deontay Wilder that you can possibly imagine is a Deontay Wilder that isn't just landing straight rights or isn't just the Wilder of old, which is still incredibly scary. But the scariest Deontay Wilder is a Wilder that's at least comfortable using the basic fundamentals of boxing. That's it. If I go and I see a comfortable Wilder using a somewhat educated jab, and by educated, I'm just I'm not just saying jab to land the right, and that's it. I'm talking about a jab just to stay on the outside for maybe three rounds, just being able to just a pot shot. Ain't even got to be consistent. Just like up, oh, I want to get some space. Okay, cool. Keep you at the end. 
keep you at the end. Time you, just from time to time. Just from time to time. Not even consistent. I'm not looking for elite. I'm looking for average. Right now, Wilder's below average. In terms of fundamental boxing skill. If he does that, If he does that, that's what, that, that, that sound right there. That is going to be the, that is the undertaker coming to, to, to kill everybody. I get that that's not the undertaker sound, but you get what I'm saying. That is, that, you know what, even better. That right there. That's what you're going to have with Deontay Wilder. More than a boogeyman. He's a Grim Reaper. Because now he's comfortable just utilizing the basics. If he's able just to utilize the basics, that's all he needs. That's it. Just utilize some of the basics. If, if somebody's trying to come in close, just somewhat be able to fight on your back foot. Just somewhat. We already know what you can do coming forward. But just in, in, in the mid-range, or for my video game people, in the neutral, when both people are looking for an angle of attack and both are in range, being able just to utilize, pop shot a jab, an educated jab, popping it to the body, Maybe throw it straight right to the body. Not going full force with your shots in a wild manner all the time. Just some of the basics. Just some. Even if it's a basic lean back and throw the right. That's it. If I, can, if I see something that's not just this, having my scope in my, in my jab, having my scope out, waiting to throw it, waiting to throw that big bomb of a right hand, if I, see, if, I, if I see something outside of this, like a, like a, like a somewhat consistent counter left hook, like, like, like an uppercut when somebody tries to to dip under your jab. A, a, a better ability to gauge the distance. Being able to have slightly better ring control and ring presence so that now the opponents can't take advantage of the exposed weakness that you have, which is making you fight on your back foot. That's it. If I could just see that, you're looking at a fighter that I don't know who else can beat him only because of that sheer right hand. He's got a shot. Well, excuse me. Plenty of people can quote unquote beat him. But he's fought many fighters that are better fundamentally than him. And he had 41 knockouts in 42 fights. Many of them were better fundamentally than him. And he just blew him out of the water. So again, if he's just able to, to somewhat utilize 
slightly, slightly better fundamentals. Just you, just using some of the simple stuff. That's it. That's it. That's it. Just some simple stuff. Just some fundamental stuff. A check hook. Setting traps for a punch outside of the right hand. That's it. Being able to not panic when somebody's closing the distance. Not reverting to only the big right hand when you're in trouble. Being more composed. And being down to your comfortable weight of 212. He's got a shot at getting back not only on top for the under for the WBO title. He can win a, he can win undisputed. Because Wilder is one of the few fighters in the history of boxing that he can claim the world while only knowing a third of the tricks of the trade. He can conquer the, he, he, he's a brother, he can conquer the world. Think of it, we'll put it in comic book terms. He's a brother that can conquer the world. This brother can be like Lex Luthor. He can conquer the world, but never leave Gotham City. Oh, excuse me, never leave Metropolis. Let me take that back. Never leave Metropolis. But he can conquer the entire world. Never touch Asia, Africa, South America. Never touch any other country or nation. Never step foot over there and conquer the world. Don't know nothing about the culture. Don't know nothing about the, the, the ways of the people. They ain't got no experience in, 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 in PR. Ain't got none of that. But with that limited level of knowledge, can go out and conquer the entire world. That's what Deontay Wilder can do. He's got that potential. If he just learns to... Learn. That's it. If he just learns to learn. Not blame your coaches. Not blame your trainers. Not blame water or anything like that. Like in your previous fight. If you just learn to learn. That's all you have to do. You learn to learn. And you're golden. Take heed to some of the problems that you have. And just not mentally check out. And say that I only need the big right hand. Just learn a little bit. And you will be set to conquer the world. Because like you said in Deontay Wilder. Like Deontay Wilder has been saying. he just, You need to be perfect for 12 rounds fighting against me. All I need to do is be perfect for one second. I seen you perfect for one second. You saw it against Tyson Fury in the draw that they had. When he knocked him down in the 12th. You saw it against Tyson Fury in the third fight. When he knocked him down twice. 
off a short right hand with Tyson Fury coming inside. And mind you, one of his biggest weaknesses is that he fights, he can't fight on the back foot, yet, yet he knocked him down while fighting on the back foot in the corner, running out of room, in the worst position a boxer can be, especially with a lack of defense that Deontay Wilder has. Did that to right now, or was, before retirement, the best heavyweight in the world. That's, if he just, again, just learn to learn. Take heed. And you got it. It's in the palm of your hand. It's in the palm of your hand. He can definitely knock out Usyk. He can show enough like knock. He can definitely knock out Joshua. There's not a heavyweight alive right now that he can't KO. Not a heavyweight alive that he can't KO. Not a heavyweight alive that he cannot knock out. So that's how, as a, as a again, with that limited skill set, the one thing he's mastered better than anybody else is that one-two and that scope of a left hand mapping out the target. And once that opening takes place for that right hand to come, Boom. It's like a ripcord. It's like a chainsaw. Hold it out like this and then ha. Pull it back. Throw that right hand through. Punches through opponents. Not one person has been able to stand up to his right hand. One person has gotten up. In Tyson Fury. But when I say stood up, I mean one person has never gone through a whole fight. To my recollection, without being hurt or being knocked down versus Deontay Wilder. That's it. That's it. Nobody. No matter what tactic they used. And he's limited. Some would say primitive in his fighting fundamentals. But if he just adds a tad more to that. The world is his oyster. Because it'll because he can because it'll be easier for him to be perfect. Not just for one second, but for a round. Maybe two. Maybe three. It opens up even more opportunities for him for his margin of error to be even wider. Because right now he's been fighting with a margin of error that's minuscule. 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 And he's been able to do what he's been doing. The most destructive knockout artist in the heavyweight division today. In all of boxing, actually. Outside of maybe now we in a way. And even as, as now we in a way is a, is a leagues above. Wilder as a fighter. Again, argument for pound for pound, greatest in the world. Wilder is just, he, he just blows through people. It does not matter. That's the difference. It does not matter how good you are or how big the gap is. He will still knock you out. That's how scary he is. He'll knock you out through your guard. Knock you out at the top of your head. Knock you out at the temple. He'll knock you out grazing you. He just adds just a, 
a, a, a pitch of boxing fundamentals to him. The world is in the palm of his hand to take. And the heavyweight championship of the world is within his grasp. Even at the age of what, 38, 36, he's old. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If he just does that, he's on the cusp. The cusp of getting back to the heavyweight championship title contention and potentially winning it all. Not just the WBO if they have a title eliminator, but in all of boxing, it can become undisputed. Legitimately. It can absolutely happen. But it's up to him. It's up to him. So this has been, this has been getting into the ring in terms of covering the boxing world today. My God, there's so much going on. There's so much going on. We still got so much. We still got Kendall Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin. That's coming up in September. I'm going to cover that fight, absolutely. But for this one, for the last topic, we have got to talk about the NBA. Specifically, Rivalry Week. They just announced that the NBA schedule has been put out and they have a boatload of quality games. But specifically, NBA is bringing Rivalry Week into the schedule and essentially vaunted rivalries of the NBA like Lakers and Celtics, like, shoot, Clippers and Lakers, Celtics and Heat are being put for a week for about a week in the in the schedule to hype up the fans and get some good competition. Which is good in theory. But I'm gonna read off some of these, I'm gonna read off the list of games to you. And I'm gonna tell you what the problem is. Here's the games that are gonna be on for rivalry week. Excuse me. I don't know why I'm getting tongue-tied. Here are the games. Celtics and Heat, Clippers versus Lakers, Nets versus Sixers, Grizzlies versus Warriors, Bulls versus Hornets, Suns versus Mavericks. Timberwolves versus Grizzlies, Raptors versus Warriors, Nuggets versus Sixers, Knicks versus Nets. Now, is there an outside of shoot outside of Celtics and Heat? Do you sense that there's any legitimate rivalries out of this schedule? I don't. That's the only thing I just listed. Are there any real rivalries in this schedule? Nuggets and Sixers? Warriors and Raptors? Suns and Mavericks? Grizzlies and Warriors? See, a lot of these games seem like it's because of Last year's playoff run. Again, Mavericks, Game 7, blow out the Suns. Grizzlies, Grizzlies and Warriors have a back and forth with each other. Celtics and Heat have a phenomenal seven-game series. I mean, Raptors and Warriors, if that's from the 26, if that's from, what was it, 2018-2019, whenever the Raptors beat the Warriors with Kawhi Leonard, for the championship, if that's what they're going off of, I mean, I, I get it, 
But at the same time, it's one of the problems with the NBA. Even though I love it, there is not a large or major, a big, there's not a big apparent pool of deep-seated and rooted rivalries going on in the NBA. There just isn't. Yeah, sure, you got your Lakers and Celtics. But outside of that, has anything been really kindled that have made made these flames of competition hotter? No. It hasn't. And, And while I see what they're trying to do, the issue is they have to be able, as, as a league, the NBA needs to have the ability to market, not only market better, but allow players to actively act like it's a rivalry game. What do I mean by that? In the past, we talk about the 80s and 90s and the violence and the hard fouls and the intense level of defense and and combativeness that they had, no friends or whatever like that. That's what made those rivalries so special. Knicks versus Chicago. Um, again, Lakers and Celtics. Celtics and Sixers. All these teams. Detroit Pistons and Chicago. Detroit Pistons versus anybody. All these teams, yes, they had rivalries with each other. But it was because of the fact that they were able to be aggressive. They were able to be combative. They they had the ability and the leeway to talk smack, to get in each other's faces, to actively fuel the flame on the court and not just let the fans say, I don't like this team, or I don't like this team. Oh, yeah, now we're rivals. It wasn't just that. The passion of the players bled into the fans also understanding the intensity of the game and further buying into it. Now, I'm not saying I want modern-day players to just be knocking each other out, throwing lefts and rights, malice in the palace every time a rivalry game happens. But at the same time, at the same time, however, I'm not knocking players for being friends off the court. The issue with rivalry games and rivalries not being apparent in the NBA is the fact that now they're just in name only. Players can't actively act like this is a rivalry. They can't get cocky against each other. They can't talk to each other. It's a foul. They can't talk smack to each other or they get thrown out the game. They can't let their emotions run high a little bit for fear of getting a technical. They can't get in each other's faces. They can't play more aggressively on defense. They can't talk to each other and and taunt each other after making an and one in a close game. Their emotions are tied down because of the rules of the league. And it's both good and bad. It's good because, again, we don't want another malice in the palace. We want people fighting left, right, and center. But you also can't just take away the charisma and the gusto of players but still expect the team to be hating each other when they play against each other or getting amped up to play against each other when they play against each other. 
people want to beat the Warriors. Yes, sure. But at the same time, they can't talk smack on the court like they want to. But the Warriors can do it to them. Or if it gets too heated, everybody gets thrown out. I'm not calling the NBA soft. That's what's not happening. It's stupid to call the NBA soft. But the rules of the game and the officiating of the game has become very strict and stringent, not just on the offensive and defensive part of the floor, not just on the game itself, but on the way players are managed within the game, on what's allowed in-game. Yes, players have charisma, but it's to a point. And it's understandable, but at the same time, it's too restrictive. That's why you don't get the best of these deep-seated rivalries. Again, Atlanta Hawks versus the Knicks could be a great rivalry up and coming because the Knicks hate Trey Young. They don't like Atlanta, but they hate Trey Young. This could turn into a legitimate rivalry for years to come if the NBA lets the taunting be okay. If the NBA lets the emotions have the ability to run high. If the NBA lets players get into each other's faces so that they the 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 the, the fervor is felt and bleeds over. Yes, Nick fans are absolutely about that life, sure. But right now, it's just seeds. And every couple of seasons, that's it. It's just seeds of a rivalry. It's not like if you look at soccer. Barcelona versus Man City. It's a rivalry. Chelsea versus Tottenham. It's a rivalry. They don't like each other. Every time they step on the field... It's apparent they don't like each other. Every time you bring up the name with those two in context, everybody looks up like, oh, Lord. Everybody step back. That's what happens. A bomb goes off. It goes from consistent, just on the floor, okay, good basketball, to now deep-seated, feelings towards each other off the floor from the fans and to some degree from the players. But the NBA doesn't necessarily want that, even though they tout having rivalries. They love the rivalries that are legacy-driven because it brings, you know, it's it's history. Oh, you got to love history. But with the new modern-day game, if they want that, history to be built up upon and make new, legitimate, marketable, fan-friendly, and fan-worthy rivalries that feel legitimate, not just in name, but in actual watching, they've got to give the players more leeway. They have to. 
If they don't, we're going to get these games in name, but never in action. We're going to get these games based on, off of the legacy and not based off of the now. Not based off of what's currently happening. Not based off of the current feelings of players, but instead the feelings of the past. At some point in time, with as marketable as the NBA has, has done for themselves, they've done a phenomenal job. There has to be an evolution in writing new chapters. But the only way that evolution is going to take place is if the NBA lets the emotions of the game be the emotions of the game. If it does not happen, we're going to only get these rivalries as, oh, yeah, I guess that'll be a good game. That's how people will feel. Yeah, I sure I'll tune in. Yeah, that, that, that'll be fairly competitive. Instead of, oh, they're going to go at each other. Because there, there is another level to this game between these two than just we don't like each other. Something There's something bigger that's been built. That's what the NBA needs and can have. But it's up to them to allow the players to build that foundation of competitiveness. And then you'll be able to have these games and, and, and when they get made on the schedule, they're seen as phenomenal. They're seen as incredible. They're seen as must-see TV. Now you get to go beyond just LeBron and KD playing against each other. Now you get a bunch of different games in the season that fans will actively want to tune in to because of the fact that it's not just one player driving the marketing or driving the fanfare of this game and of this team. It's the collective, deep-seated, competitive nature that these two teams harbor against each other that's more than just basketball that's going to cause this game to be close, physical, fervent, aggressive, and entertaining beyond belief because they're playing for something more than just to win. In this game, they're playing for bragging rights. And if they win, they'll let it be shown. And if they lose, they won't go out like punks. Yeah, they'll say good game, but you'll see that, oh, this loss did something to them. That's what the NBA needs to let happen by letting the players have the ability to be in each other's face, to be aggressive with each other, to talk smack, to get into each other's heads, to talk to the crowd. We see it and one mixtape tour. One of the, again, for a time was more as popular, if not more popular than the NBA. Swept the nation. Let the people like Skip to my loot, or as you NBA fans may know, Ray for Austin. Coming into the league. People like Hot Sauce, Spider, Escalade, Mark Jackson's brother, Half Man, Half Amazing, The Professor, Helicopter, Ayo. What made that game so great was one, it embodied streetball, 
And two, it embodied a harder basketball, which wasn't just, you know, putting the ball in the bucket, even though it's all about buckets. Shout out to the late great Bill Russell, who made that quote in, in, in an Uncle Drew commercial. This game will always be about buckets, which is true. But just as importantly, it was about putting on a show. That's why the Showtime Lakers was so apparent. That's why Julius Irving came into the ABA and the NBA and took the world by storm. That's why Elgin Baylor, Bob Cousy, Pete Maravich were, 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 were looked at as, oh my goodness, because they brought that Showtime aspect to the game of basketball. George Gervin, one of the greatest scorers the NBA has ever seen. Elgin Baylor. The, show, the Showtime Lakers. All of that was because of the fact that it was about putting on a show and being entertaining for the fans. And then making it known that you know what you're about. That's what made anyone so popular. It wasn't just the flashy dunks, the flashy passes. It was the taunting. It was the showboating. It was the electric nature that was brought onto the game that was conducive and understood and projected with players on the floor and bled out the players off the floor. So made that league so popular for a time. That's what the NBA can have if they allow, again, the emotion and the fun of basketball to, to be just that. Let people get their feelings hurt. Let people taunt. Let people get in, get in each other's face. Let people jaw at each other. And make it so that they prove who's better on the floor. That's what allows for the nature of basketball to be elevated because now it's, it's bigger than just winning. Now it's about pride. When it becomes about pride, now you get to see where the, where, where the real ballers are. Now you get to see where people really stand. Now you get to see where people will really draw a line in the sand and prove who they are and prove what they're about. There's still respect there, absolutely. But you see that respect shown in not wanting to be shown up. That's what the NBA needs. They want to have a legitimately entertaining, great, relevant rivalry week that they're trying to muster up and garner. Don't put just the name. Over the game, let the game be the game, and let the players, let the players, let let them go. Take the leash off of, off of them. Let them show what they're about. Let them show what they're about. Because I promise you, the whole league will be ten times better for it. Ten times better for it. Again, I'm not saying fighting. I'm not saying people cussing each other out left, right, and center. I'm not saying you throwing straight rights like Daryl Dawkins did against the Portland Trailblazers. I'm not saying you socking people like Dr. J 
sucked Larry Bird. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is don't contain the emotions while not capping the emotions. Contain the game while not capping the game. Contain it, yeah, draw parameters, but widen them up a little bit so that players can actively show fully the emotion that they want to show. A little taunting ain't bad. A little aggression never hurt nobody. A little bit of pandering to the crowd and letting them know you showed somebody up, that ain't bad. People call it uh, non-sportsmanship. No, that's basketball. That's basketball. When you come into this game, anything can happen. If you do something good, you can still respect the game while still having fun. Old heads think that, oh, you got to just, everybody's got to be Tim Duncan. If you want to be Tim Duncan, be Tim Duncan. It's not a knock either. But don't let what can make this league so, so, so much more entertaining be hindered by trying to control and put a cap on the emotions of what players want to actually show. Let them talk. Let them pander. Let them show somebody up and talk about it. Don't just let it be on Twitter. People get at each other. Let them do it on the floor. And then you'll see even more fervent fan bases. Then you won't just have Knicks versus Chicago or Celtics versus Lakers as one of the few rivalries that the NBA can constantly touch on and say, oh yeah, this is going to be a good game. Let the legacies be built by expanding and somewhat releasing the restraints that you have on the players. And I guarantee you the game is going to be a lot better for it. A lot better. But this has been another episode of the Welch Report. I'm so glad to be back on here again. Again, 5 o'clock tomorrow. Anthony Joshua versus Usyk is going down. Catch it wherever you can. I'm going to catch it wherever I can. And trust me, I'm going to talk about what the outcome of that fight is going to be. We're going to talk about much, much more as the episodes go on. Love y'all. Keep supporting the channel. Leave a like on the video. Share. Comment. Tell everybody you know. Listen to this wherever you are. And again, again, share it with whoever you know. We're trying to build a community. I want this to be big. I want this to be grand. I want to, I want to be able to do this hey, for a living. And I can't do this without you. So I love y'all. Can't wait to be with y'all again. Peace and love. We out of here.